This morning's sermon text is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Now we know what the angels in heaven are doing this morning, looking into these things. Uh, This passage tells us that the angels long to look into these things. Their attention is captivated. It's like they're gazing down into a deep well of God's goodness and marveling over what they see there. Uh, The angels are marveling over these truths right now. If there are libraries in heaven, uh, the angels are digging through the records to understand more about this salvation, the salvation that has come to you. What captures your attention? Uh, Maybe books on some particular topic you find fascinating or the latest Netflix series that you're really into. Uh, that, that thing where when you get into it, you just find it hard to extricate yourself from it. Well, pay attention to these verses this morning. Uh, the angels are captivated by these truths. The people uh, that Peter is writing to are suffering afflictions and trials of, of various kinds and so uh, you may remember from the past couple weeks that he's, he's sitting down uh, to write this letter to them to encourage them as, as exiles along with all the challenges that that would entail. And so Peter's words should come home, so to speak, to all of us, but especially uh, to those who are suffering some kind of affliction or trial, financial pressures or uncertainty, unemployment, depression, problematic emotions, uh, persistent relational conflicts social ostracism that you may experience on account of your faith uh, in the workplace or at school. This passage is for anyone, but it is especially for those who are facing some kind of trial. In the passage, the the verses that Tom looked at last week, Peter uh, was addressing the exalted, the eternal nature of the salvation they have received. Uh, But in this passage, continuing to talk about that same salvation Uh, Peter now says to them, remember all of human history has led to this. Uh, Millions of occurrences over thousands of years have led to your salvation. God has shaped all of human history to rescue you, to bring salvation to you. It was obscure to them, but it has been disclosed to you. So you are in a highly favored position, better than prophets Better than angels, you are highly favored. These, these three verses could be divided into two parts, salvation predicted and salvation delivered. Salvation predicted and salvation delivered. So first we see salvation predicted. Look again at verses 10 and 11. Again, Peter says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. 
Notice the the core structure of this sentence. The prophets searched and inquired carefully. The prophets searched and inquired. Now, if you know much about the prophets of the Old Testament, these were the men whose job it was to speak to the people of Israel on God's behalf. So God would reveal some message to them, and then they were to speak that to the people. So God speaks through people to people. The prophet is like God's mouthpiece. And these prophets are speaking about the Christ. Now, Christ is the, uh, the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. Uh, but both words, Christ and Messiah, mean the same thing. They simply mean anointed. Uh, but the full idea of the Messiah is that he would be an anointed king who would deliver his people from their enemies. So prophet is like God's mouthpiece. Christ means Messiah, which is this, this promised deliverer of God's people. And, and Peter tells us that the spirit of the Messiah was working in these prophets, indicating and predicting. So while men authored the Old Testament, in, in another sense, God authored the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit wrote these words through uh, these men who were moved by him. So Peter uh, says in his second letter that these prophetic men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So when the prophets spoke, God spoke. And and that is why the Christian is so deeply affected and convinced by the scriptures because the spirit who spoke it gives the Christian ears to hear it. But the spirit who spoke it has to give those ears to hear and eyes to see. And the one who is blind, just completely blind, couldn't perceive that the sun is shining, even if it was at full strength at high noon, unless someone reported it to him and told him about it. Uh, But for the one who can see, there's no report needed to convince him that the sun is shining. The the sun is powerfully self-evident. Its light is clear to all who have eyes. And similarly, to ask the one who is a true believer, how do you know that the scriptures are from God? Is, is the same as asking someone who sees the light how they know that there's light. Uh, because it's self-evident. I, I feel it. I can see it. The reformers use the word self-authenticating to describe the nature of the Bible. So the prophecies of the Old Testament come through men, but they come from God. And so they powerfully affect those who believe. They are self-authenticating. So how, how do you know the Bible is true? Well, at least part of the answer to that question has to be uh, that, that it powerfully affects you. you know, it, has, it has brought you to life, and it brings life to you. Psalm 119, the psalmist says, give me life according to your word. Give me life according to your promises. Give me life. Give me life. He prays that over and over. The word of God, because it comes from God's spirit, is illuminating and and life-giving. And yet we still wonder, how did the spirit within these prophets make these indications and and predictions? How, How exactly did this happen? What was the process? Was this a crystal ball sort of thing? Was, was the prophet 
um, hearing an audible voice speaking precise words, and then he's sitting down at his prophet's desk just furiously writing as he hears these words dictated, trying to make sure he doesn't miss a single word, like a secretary keeping minutes. How how exactly uh, did this happen, this predicting and indicating of the Spirit? Well, in, a, in another one of the New Testament letters, the letter to the Hebrews, the, the very first words of that letter are, uh, long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways. So there was no one single way that God did this, but rather spread out over generations, God spoke in many different ways. There was a voice from a burning bush, There was the tent of meeting where God uh, met Moses and and spoke with him face to face like you would talk with a friend. The prophets had visions while they slept. They had visions while they were wide awake in the temple. Uh, God spoke from one mountain through a thunder and lightning storm. And then on a different occasion, God spoke from another mountain in a still small voice. There were many ways that God spoke to the prophets. But the unexpected thing is that these prophets were left with questions. Uh, So the Spirit showed them the sufferings of the Messiah and the subsequent glories of this this promised deliverer, but the Spirit does not show them the details of of the person and the time and the circumstances. How, How exactly would this promised deliverer come? How and when? And so the prophets are left wondering. They're searching and inquiring carefully these words of intense desire to know to to solve this riddle the apostle paul says that the idea of the messiah was a mystery hidden for ages and generations the messiah was a great treasure but a hidden treasure and obscure so bb warfield the great princeton theologian of the early 1900s said the old testament may be likened to a chamber richly furnished but dimly lighted. The introduction of light into the chamber brings nothing that was not in it before, but it brings out into clearer view much of what was in it already, but was only dimly or even not at all perceived before. The Old Testament is like a room richly furnished, but dimly lit. The prophets of the Old Testament deliver an incomplete message about the Messiah. Their their message was incomplete. However, It was not inconsistent. Uh, So don't miss this profound implication. Peter is is summarizing the message of the Old Testament with these words. The sufferings of the Messiah and the subsequent glories. So the implication is that all of God's past revelation, the, the burning bush, the tent of meeting, the visions in the temple, and while they were sleeping, the still small voice, all of it, could be summarized in these two simple ideas, the sufferings of the Messiah and the following glories of the Messiah. So there there are many confusing things in the Old Testament, but this summary is extremely clarifying. How did Peter know this? How did he develop this profound conviction and insight about the Old Testament? I mean, Peter, you'll remember, was a fisherman. In fact, Uh, When Peter was preaching in the book of Acts, uh, we're told that the crowds noticed two things about him. First, he was very bold. Well, that's no surprise. If you know anything at all about Peter, uh, you know that he's a foot-in-the-mouth kind of guy. So he was was very bold. 
But the second thing they noticed about him uh, was that he was common and uneducated. That was obvious to everybody. So how did this uh, common, uneducated fisherman come up with this profoundly uh, insightful and simple summary of the Old Testament? Well, of course, his school teacher was the Messiah himself. Who better to teach Peter how to read the messianic message of the Old Testament than Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah? You might remember how the the Gospel of Luke records that Jesus was uh, walking along the road to Emmaus with uh, a couple of his followers after the resurrection, but they didn't recognize that it was him. And, And Jesus said to them, You are slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Suffering and glory. Exactly the same thing Peter says in his letter here. Peter learned to read the Old Testament from Jesus himself. So in these words, we have a lesson about how we should read the Old Testament. We look for signs of Jesus. Uh, It's not going to be in every verse you read. Uh, Jesus isn't under every stone, so to speak. Uh, For instance, at the beginning of the Old Testament book of Joshua, uh, there are the two spies, you may remember this story, who go ahead of Israel uh, to spy out the city of Jericho. And they receive um, a a welcome, safekeeping from Rahab. And so they tell her that she should put a scarlet cord in her window and then they will spare her and her family when the city is attacked. Well, that red cord, it doesn't represent the blood of Jesus. It's just a scarlet cord that would be easy for the army to see against the city wall when they came to the city. So we can't pretend that every time we see the color red in the Old Testament, it's the blood of Jesus. Again, Peter is indicating that the Old Testament speaks with a consistent voice about the suffering and glory of the Messiah. Uh, But that doesn't mean that the Messiah is in every line. So how should we, as Christians, interpret the Old Testament? Well, a Christian should interpret the Old Testament from the point of view of Jesus as the final word in the story of redemption. He's the final word displayed for all the world to see in his cross and resurrection. Okay, so how do we do that? Uh, Well, let me suggest four reliable paths to Christ from the Old Testament. Uh, First, there are the major images of the Old Testament. The major images of the Old Testament. There's the bronze snake in the wilderness. Uh, There's the water of life from the rock that Moses struck. There are the sacrifices, the whole sacrificial system of the Old Testament, of of Israel. They they vividly teach uh, the cost of sin, that the cost of sin is death. But then Jesus comes and he's the final sacrifice who pays that cost. So these images and many others prepare us to understand Jesus when he comes more fully. Then a second reliable path to Christ is through the major themes of the Old Testament, the major themes So, for instance, the idea of God's kingdom or the kingdom is all over the Old Testament. And then Jesus comes and he announces that he himself is the true king of God's kingdom. Uh, Covenant, the idea of the covenant is another theme in the Old Testament. So God makes a covenant with his people. He says, he promises to them, I will be your God and you will be my people. 
And Jesus secures all of the covenant promises of God from the Old Testament uh, to his people. We get the fulfillment of all of God's promises through Jesus Christ. So anytime you read about the covenant in the Old Testament, it should point you forward to Christ and how he brings fulfillment of God's promises to us. So there are the major themes. And then a third reliable path to Christ is the overall trajectory of the Old Testament. The overall trajectory. So the whole story of the nation of Israel is is desperately anticipating some final deliverance and deliverer. There there is uh, the ark that delivers Noah and his family. And then Moses comes and delivers Israel from Egypt. There's a series of judges who bring temporary uh, deliverance from, from tribal kings. David delivers from Goliath. Near the end of the Old Testament, Ezra and Nehemiah deliver uh, Israel out of exile. So there are all these kind of temporary deliverance events. And yet when the Old Testament closes, when, when the curtain falls at the end of the Old Testament, we're, we've still never met that, that one who brings permanent, triumphant deliverance. So we want Act 2. We feel like the show can't be finished. There, there has to be more. So... When you're reading through the Old Testament, if you get bogged down in, say, Leviticus, which is where everyone gets bogged down, uh, stop reading it like a pre-Jesus Jew. Read it as a Christian, not as a Jew. Try to step back from it. And remember that that the whole story of Israel is thrusting forward to act two, to the coming of Jesus, the deliverer. So then the, the seemingly tedious laws of Leviticus... Uh, they portray God's demand for holiness and worship. And then we think of all the ways that we have failed to give God holiness and worship. Think of all the ways that you are unclean this morning before God. And yet, and yet Jesus comes and Paul says in Galatians that he delivers us from the curse of the law. The Bible is, is a forward-leaning document. It's, it's begging for fulfillment. So the overall trajectory of the Old Testament just thrusts forward to Christ. By the way, this is one of the reasons that in our teaching, we try to move back and forth between the Old Testament and, and, and the New Testament here at Christ's Covenant to show, even in the sequence of, of preaching and, and Bible studies, uh, that there is not disunity in the message of the different parts of the Bible. And for you personally, as, as you read through the Bible, you know, just little chunks, day in and day out, uh, it's good to try to move from beginning to end. Even if you're not trying to go through the Bible in a year, read from the front and the back of the Bible and then go back again, moving through the whole thing uh, to see how it all fits together. So there's the overall trajectory of the Old Testament. And then a, a fourth reliable path to Christ is to look for those places where we find New Testament affirmation. New Testament affirmation. So there are places uh, where Jesus and the other writers of the New Testament make connections that you and I might have never seen. And yet, we believe that Jesus and the other authors of the New Testament are reliable guides in regard to doctrine. And so when they show us these things, we want to look for those places and take note of them where, where Jesus or Paul or Peter make a connection from the Old Testament uh, to Jesus. So when you're reading and you see one of those things, make a note of it. Maybe go back to your Old Testament then 
and jot down in the margin where that New Testament reference uh, indicates fulfillment. So in all of these ways, we interpret the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus as the Messiah, the fulfillment of that Old Testament hope for a, a, for a deliverer. So Peter's comments about the prophetic nature of the Old Testament are deeply instructive. Uh, the Old Testament speaks with a consistent voice about the sufferings of the Messiah and the subsequent glories. But again, let's not lose his main point in this, these two first verses. Remember, remember that the central structure of this sentence is the prophets searched and inquired carefully. Uh, the prophets were left scratching their heads. They, they couldn't solve what Paul referred to as the mystery hidden for ages and generations. But in the next verse, there's a major shift. So Peter says uh, to these elect exiles who are enduring affliction, uh, what the prophets didn't know, you now know. Salvation through Jesus the Messiah is no longer a mystery. It has been fully announced to you. This is our second point, salvation delivered. Uh, So look at verse 12 again. Peter says, It was revealed to them, to the prophets, that they were serving not themselves, but you. The prophets were serving you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. Well, here the Spirit replies, in a sense, to the questions of the prophets. They were searching. They were wanting more details. And the Spirit replies to them and says, not yet, not yet. Because the point of all those piecemeal bits of information in the Old Testament was to prepare the way. The message of the prophets was not unimportant or meaningless to them and their own generation. But the full realization of their message was intended not for them, but for those who would, who would come after the Messiah. So that Peter can say, everything the prophets told us, they were just laying the groundwork so that you could fully understand the Messiah when he comes, so that you could have faith in him. All the bits and pieces of the Old Testament find their unity in Jesus. As Augustine said, the new is in the old concealed, and the old is in the new revealed. What was concealed and mysterious has now been revealed. And Peter says, the answer to the mystery the details that the prophets wanted but didn't get are the very contents of the good news, the gospel that has now been proclaimed to you. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. The prophets foretold what the apostles reported. The seers looked forward and the evangelists looked backward, but their eyes meet at one place. They see eye to eye and both behold the cross of Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, you have predictions of the sufferings of the Messiah. And then the gospel that has been proclaimed to you, the good news of Jesus and the apostles, is the announcement that Jesus endured all of that suffering. So Genesis 3.15, God says to the deceitful serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall crush your head, though you shall bruise his heel. And this promise is fulfilled in Jesus, who was bruised by death in our place. He was our representative. And then in Genesis 22, 
God tested Abraham, saying to him, Take your only son and kill him, and offer him as a burnt offering. And Abraham, by faith, says to his son Isaac, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. And then God does that. And then Abraham named that mountain. Do you remember what he named it? He called it, God will provide. Because God provided the lamb. And there would be a time many years later when God would provide again his only son. Who had to be killed and offered as a sacrifice. But unlike Abraham, God goes through with the act. There is no backup lamb for Jesus. He is our backup lamb. He is our substitute. In Psalm 22, David, feeling abandoned and forgotten, cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But David's words of abandonment were prophetic. He describes in his own feelings the sufferings that Jesus would exhaust. And then the prophet Isaiah writes these words. In Isaiah 53, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, Yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. These are the sufferings of the Messiah that Isaiah only understood incompletely. But now you and I read those words and and we see Jesus and we we can see so clearly how those words are made good news for us through the suffering of Jesus. He is substituted in our place. Through his wounds we are healed. This is the good news that has been announced to us. Jesus has taken all of that suffering. The sufferings of the Messiah predicted from Genesis to Malachi, from from one end of the Old Testament to the other, Those sufferings should be yours and mine. You ever feel like a failure? You ever feel like you haven't lived up to God's expectations of you? Your feelings are actually quite accurate. We have failed him. Human sin is the central problem between us and God. We've failed to live as he instructs, and there's nothing we can do about it. Every person without exception is born paralyzed spiritually paralyzes nothing we can do to correct the situation and yet the messiah has borne all the consequences of our failings and this is how jesus delivers us he he substitutes himself in the place of our punishment we sin but he takes the fall you 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 have infinitely offended god with your sin this week uh, but you don't need to be punished for it this, this is why conversion, uh, turning to Jesus, conversion, always begins with hatred of sin. You know, the, the one who believes that Jesus suffered for sin in these ways learns to hate his own sin. 
If, if you are entertaining yourself with some sin, if you're just you're going on in sin and, and not stopping, just reflect for a moment. You know, perhaps you'll observe that you rarely, if ever, think of, about the cost of sin to Christ. He suffers for us. And, and the salvation that Peter speaks about here is the result not only of the sufferings, uh, but also of the glory of the Messiah. Not only those sufferings, but also the glories that followed. What is this glory? Well, it also was predicted in the Old Testament. In Psalm 2, God says to his son, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. Psalm 45 is a a song to the Messiah. It says to the Messiah, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond all your companions. And then in Psalm 110, the the, the most quoted psalm in the New Testament, uh, God says to the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Rule and reign in the midst of your enemies. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then finally, in Daniel 7, the prophet Daniel sees this incredible vision of the Messiah. He says, I I saw him, there there came one like a son of man with the clouds of heaven along with him, and he was presented before the ancient of days. And to him, to this son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. All of these and many more describe the glory of the Messiah. His glory is that he will reign over everything forever. This is why we say Jesus is the true king of God's kingdom. And this is why he can offer salvation to you. Because he earned it. He fought and conquered. So do you want his kingdom? Do you want to reign with him? You know, do you want an eternal happiness that far more than outweighs the suffering you may experience in this life? Well, then abandon everything else and walk with Jesus. And if you're already a, a loyal subject of the kingdom of Jesus, then consider the great privilege of this salvation. The prophets have served you. Not only the prophets, but Peter says, those who have preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, they have served you too. Whenever someone preaches the gospel to you, they are your servants. I am your servant, proclaiming this passage to you. That's how I think of what I'm doing. I'm serving you and proclaiming the gospel. And not only are the prophets and preachers your servants, But angels long to look into these things. The angels aren't even saved. The salvation was for you, not for the angels, and yet they are astounded by it. What an incredible privilege we have from God. And Peter reminds his readers of all these things because they are suffering various kinds of afflictions, various kinds of trials. And so Peter says to them, 
The message of the prophets to us is that Jesus also suffered, but he then entered into glory. You see how he's encouraging them with this message? He, Jesus, endured the cross first and then entered into the joy set before him. Suffering first, then glory later. This is the way God works, and this is the pattern. This is what we should expect in our own experience. Martin Luther said, it's the way of God. He humbles that he might exalt. He kills that he might make alive. He confounds that he might glorify. So it's true in our own experience. Suffering first, glory later. This is true in two ways. First, it's true within this life. We often recognize that God brings deep joys out of deep sorrows. That he brings prosperity out of adversity. So that those who suffer can often look back and say, I I wouldn't have it any other way. God even brings grace out of sin. That is, he he turns sin against itself in order to further his grace toward us. This was certainly the experience of Joseph who said to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. These words might sound familiar to you from Psalm 30. His anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. When you're in the night of weeping, of anxiety, grief, depression, loneliness, or longing, cast yourself on the one who says joy comes in the morning. Suffering first, glory later. The high demands of hands-on parenting first, and Lord willing, uh, the fruit of faithful children later. This principle is often our lived experience. Uh, But second, it's also true beyond this life. Not only within this life, but beyond this life. That is, uh, the one who sincerely cherishes Jesus and follows him by faith will follow Jesus right into his glory. Uh, It's true, there is some suffering that will go to the grave with you. It may never be alleviated in this life. Uh, Tom pointed out last week, Uh, Maybe my favorite part of the sermon last week, uh, that in your 30s, your body hits the brakes. And you you remember this? In your 40s, you hit the wall. In your 50s, it's an absolute free fall, is what he said, not me. And after that, you're just happy to be alive. Um, Bodily ailments will go to the grave with us. They will take us to the grave. And there may be some suffering that you're experiencing that will always be a part of your current life story. And yet, if you're following Jesus, you will enter with him into eternal glory. Peter holds out this hope. Jesus entered into glory. If you're following him, you will enter into glory as well. Eternal happiness awaits you. Not only does God redeem broken things in this life, but he will eternally make sad things come untrue. There is no better king to follow. Though you don't see him, you love him. And even in various trials, through him, you can rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. Let's just take a moment of silence now to consider what the angels are thinking about this morning.
and then Ray will come and pray.